0: If you had to sum up Christianity into one image, it would be the cross. This, by far, is the most common way that people depict Christianity. And here in the Protestant stream, which we're a part of, we tend to show the cross by itself without Jesus on it. But for most of church history, anytime there was a cross, a crucifix, Jesus was on the cross. Like this painting by Andrea Mantegna in the 1400s in Italy, and you know some of us will say, "Well, Jesus isn't on the cross anymore." You know that's why we have the cross by itself. Well, Jesus isn't in the manger anymore either, and most of our nativity scenes at Christmas time have little baby Jesus in them, right? But he's not there. Um, but you know pictures like this are. are universally associated with Christianity by everybody. I mean, this is the most depicted event in human history, and it's not close. And so, you know, wherever you are, wherever you come from, if you, if you look at something like this, you know what it's about. And for Christians, this image, a picture like this, it's appealing. You, you find meaning in it. You're drawn towards it. If you're a non-Christian, you probably feel more neutral about it. Because, again, you've seen crosses growing up, especially here in the Bible Belt in the South, and so you know what it's about. So you feel kind of neutral. But for folks in the first century in Palestine, where Jesus died and rose from the dead, an image like this was not seen as neutral. It was seen as shameful. You see, a cross in the first century was a device used by the Romans to humiliate, torture, and execute their enemies. And it was reserved for the worst of the worst, insurrectionists. The cross was shameful. I mean, it was the kind of thing you did not want to talk about. You didn't even want to think about the cross. It was violent. It was shameful, even repulsive, you know, nobody today, I mean, think about this, It kind of helps us get a little closer. Nobody wants to wear a piece of clothing with a picture of Auschwitz on it, concentration camp. And can you imagine if they did? And when we start to think about that, we're getting a little bit closer. This was shameful, And and yet, you know, in the midst of this culture where, listen, you would never want the symbol of your brand to be this if you were starting a movement. And you certainly would never want to, in a religion, attach your leader to a crucifixion. In that kind of a culture, Christians moved towards the centrality of the cross, not away from it. In spite of it being viewed, viewed as shameful, repulsive, They did not move away, they moved towards it. And even in this letter, we see that in in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, what? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the text we're gonna look at today, it sums up the Christian message as the message of the cross. It's at the heart of Of what we believe as Christians. Now, why did those first followers of Jesus find it so indispensable that they moved towards it, not away from it? Why, today, as we sit in this room today, why is the cross the most universally recognized symbol on the planet? How did it go from being synonymous with Roman brutality to Jesus Christ? How did that happen? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. The church at Corinth was a mess. And we're talking about it this fall. And one of the reasons why they were a mess is they were exalting different leaders. And they were showing loyalty to somebody over somebody else. And it's causing this church to be divided. And part of the the criteria for them as they chose different leaders to follow and to listen to was wisdom. This was... A big deal, in especially in a city like Corinth, philosophy, wisdom, I mean, nowadays, somebody who's a professional athlete, a musician, a movie star, they're cool, right? We wanna be like them. Well, back then, it was the philosopher. How times have changed. Somebody who was a philosopher, who was eloquent, who had interesting ideas, that was who people wanted to gather around and, and follow and so Paul he does a couple things first he says to them he says was Christ divided for you was Paul was I crucified and, he, and he's saying nobody is Jesus but Jesus and and Jesus alone is the author of our salvation he is the only one worth giving ultimate allegiance to but then he goes on in, in verse 17. This is what Paul says, and it sets up what we're going to look at today. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, Greek orators in the first century they would try to persuade with impressive rhetoric and style. And Paul says all that does is dilute the message. The message can't be decorated. And he goes on, he tells us why it's futile to try. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, foolishness here is the Greek word moria. It's related to the word moros. And it's the root from which we get our word moron. So what he's saying is, from the perspective of the world, only a moron would believe the message of the cross. It's foolish. Maybe a better word for us today would be absurd. Absurd means ridiculously unreasonable or incongruous. The message of the cross is ridiculously unreasonable. And so people in the first century, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with it, this kind of a message. And, you know, the ancient world was awash with religions about a God that was resurrected from the dead. Egyptian, Babylonian, but Christianity was and is the only religion that has as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. It's absurd. To this point, there's a well-known graffito that was found in Rome in the first century and it's of a worshiper who is at a cross. He's worshiping a crucified figure. The figure has the head of a horse, the body of a man. And the inscription below the image, it says, "Alexamenos worships his God. Here's a stone rubbing trace of the same image to help you see it. So there's a crucified figure, the head of a horse, body of a man. There's a worshiper. And it says, "Alexamenos." worships his God. This is historical proof that in the first century, people viewed the message of the cross as ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And the idea of worshiping a crucified God is absurd. But it's even more absurd than that. Because the message of the cross isn't just that God was crucified. It's that God was crucified for you. And by trusting in him, you can experience forgiveness and new life. And this is what Paul means when he says to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power Think about the greatest conquerors who have ever lived. Who comes to mind when you think about who is the greatest conqueror who ever lived? On the short list, you'd have Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Napoleon. Well, the message of the cross is that Jesus is the greatest conqueror who ever lived, and it's not close. Because when Jesus died on the cross... In that moment, he conquered sin and death and spiritual evil itself. Now, here's here's the scandalous part. Here's the most subversive part of the cross. How did Jesus conquer? How? He did not conquer by killing, by amassing an army. He conquered by dying. He won the victory, not by winning, but by losing. You see, conventional wisdom... In the first century, and even today, conventional wisdom is the opposite. This quote by General Patton, this sums up conventional wisdom of our day. No idiot ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor, dumb idiot die for his country. That's what wisdom says today. Or this Russian anonymous saying that that goes like this, Kill one man and you are a murderer. Kill a multitude, and you are a conqueror. You see, the radical message of the cross is that Jesus won, not by killing, but by dying, by giving himself as a sacrifice in self-giving love. cross used to mean Roma victor. So sometimes above it, and just the the culture around it, it, it meant Rome is victorious. Again, it was a symbol of Rome being able to punish you if you didn't cooperate. And in the first century, by 100 AD, that had totally changed, and no longer was the cross symbolic of Rome's victory. The first followers of Jesus, they understood the cross as Christus Victor, Christ's victory. Because it's when and how salvation was ushered into our broken world. This is what Paul means when he says it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, just a couple quick implications as we keep going. First, the the power of the gospel is in the message, not the medium. And isn't that good news? The power of the gospel is not based on your ability to present it in a clever, coherent way. The message itself is where the power is. That's great news. And the second implication from this is Christianity is not cool, and it won't be. I mean, there will be forever a stigma associated to the message of the cross. People will not understand it. They will mock it. And so I just want to say to us who are Christians in the room today, do do not be ashamed of the cross. Don't be ashamed. It's the power of God. Now, why does God choose to save humanity in such an absurd way? Did you ever think about that? Why did God do this? Well, Paul, he addresses it in the very next verse. He says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Why does God choose to save through the cross? He does it to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And this is a quote from Isaiah 29 where Assyria was on Israel's doorstep. They were threatening the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria was the dominant world power at the time. Israel was terrified. And God called out to them through Isaiah and said, repent, trust me. And at the same time, the wise guys, the politicians in Israel were saying, the only smart move here is to align ourselves with Egypt because they can protect us. And in that context, God is saying, no, do not trust man's wisdom. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. But this principle, this glimpse into the purpose of God goes way beyond that one story in Isaiah. God has always done this. God will always be about doing this. He loves to destroy the wisdom of the wise. You know, in the ancient world, one of the most common And serious rules, laws, norms that you could have had to do with primogeniture. It was basically the firstborn gets everything. Firstborn son, and this was not just Israel, but all ancient cultures. And yet, in the biblical story, God regularly selects the younger sibling. Very first brothers, Cain and Abel, God shows favor to the younger, not the older. When Abraham's boys grow up, God does not pick the older, Ishmael, he picks the younger, Isaac. When Isaac's sons grow up, God does not pick Esau, he picks Jacob. When Israel selects their first king, and they chose him, a guy named Saul, who's referred to in the text as tall and handsome, so I can relate to him. You know, we got a lot in common. (laughs) When the next king of Israel comes, it doesn't come from Saul's line. Saul has a firstborn son named Jonathan. That's not who God picks, Who's the next king of Israel? David. So in David's family, is he the firstborn? No, he's the eighth. (laughs) No business being a candidate to become the next king of Israel. God loves to do this, to destroy the wisdom of the wise, to upend and challenge human forms of wisdom and power. God loves to do this. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than the cross And really, the whole life of Jesus, I mean, Jesus was born to a no-name family in a no-name city. He grew up obscure and poor. When he chose his followers, he picked guys who were uneducated, bottom of the barrel. And Jesus himself, he taught the first will be last, the last will be first. The ones who want to be great among you are the ones who serve. And Jesus served. He spent his life with the poor, the marginalized, the broken, and in his Final display of power. What did Jesus do? Jesus did not display his power through coercive force, but through sacrificing himself in self-giving love. So Paul, you know, recognizing this is the character of God, not just in Isaiah, but today, and in view of the cross, look at what Paul says. He says this. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The wisest person among you, the wisest person among us, the wisest teacher, philosopher, could never conceive of a God like this, of a plan of salvation like this. Paul goes on, verse 22, and he says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. In, in Jewish tradition, miracles They they were a a sign of authority and legitimacy from God, if you could do miracles. The Greeks, on the other hand, they were famous for their love of new ideas. They're the founders of philosophy. They love to worship gods of wisdom like Athena. But Paul, he says, for both of these groups, look at verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now the, the Jews, they taught that a person who hung on a tree was cursed. And all of what they believed about the Messiah was that he would come and conquer their enemies. Never in their wildest dreams would they have expected their Messiah, God's chosen instrument to lead. Never would they have expected him to die a horrific death on the cross. He was supposed to defeat Israel's enemies, not be defeated by them. And the the Greeks, why why is the gospel foolish to them? Because it doesn't live up to their standards of wisdom of that day. One one commentary I read, it said, The Greeks could hardly have imagined a more ridiculous religion than one that proclaimed salvation through death of one man on a Roman cross. It didn't make sense. It was foolish. And I want to say today, make no mistake Christ crucified is a stumbling block and foolishness today. We live in a culture that is shaped by rugged individualism and self-sufficiency. It's in the water. We all value that. We, we, you know, this idea, I don't need anyone else. I'm self-sufficient. You know, the, the self-help industry in America is worth more than $13 billion dollars. This whole idea, I'm going to help myself, thank you very much. And thus, even religious people assume that that the phrase, God who helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. It's actually Ben Franklin, poor Richard's almanac. You know, the, the biblical truth, and this is so important for all of you to hear today. Here's what the Bible says. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the gospel, And it is so radically subversive even now. But as long as we are the solution to all of our problems, this will be a stumbling block to us. Paul, he goes on and he says this, he says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, Matt Carter, he makes the observation that the solution to almost every single problem we face as human beings is one of two things. It's either our power or our wisdom. Apart from God, our power, our wisdom. Think about politics now. Think about all the problems we're dealing with. Everybody who's candidating, campaigning and saying, I've got the wisdom to solve this. We can muster up the power, the resources to solve this. But the biggest problem in our lives, the biggest problem in our world, the brokenness that's deep inside of us, that's ravaged our planet, that that works out in all these harmful ways, we can't solve it through our own power and wisdom. Well, who can? Well, look at the text. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he, he goes on and he restates this point. Look at verse 27. Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You see, the gospel puts us on the wrong side of all these categories. You notice that? And if we're gonna come to Christ, it's through the low door of humility because he's saying, if you belong to Jesus, it's because you're weak, you're poor, you don't have the resources on your own. But the point, the bigger point is God has destroyed our own reliance on our own wisdom and power to save us through the way, through the cross. Now why, why has God sought to completely disarm, destroy our reliance on our own power and wisdom? Well, look at the very next verse. It says this. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God hates pride. Hates pride. Proverbs 6 Tells us there's six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. You know what the first one is in that list? Haughty eyes. Proud eyes. God hates. Proverbs 8, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 3, and then it's quoted in 1 Peter 5. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed, and the the words there, by the way, it's in the present continual sense. It means God is always opposed to the proud, and God is always giving grace to the humble. Some of us might need to hear that today, in our pride. God is opposed to us in our pride. Now, why? Because pride postures itself against God. See, pride is a posture. This is why C.S. Lewis called it the great sin That gives birth to all other sins because at its root pride is a refusal to trust in God and so God has saved us in such a way (laughs) that all of us have experienced the grace of Jesus in such a way that none of us can take credit Because pride is the one thing that will block us. I mean, God works with all kinds of people throughout the Bible. You can read. I mean, Jesus loves sinners, amen. Good news for all of us in the room today. But you you know the one kind of person that God consistently does not work with, can't work with? The prideful. And so how amazing is it? God has saved us in such a way that we can only say Jesus did it. None of us get into heaven and say, because I. (laughs) We all say, because you And so I want to bring us back to the heart of this text, verse 18. Look with me. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the message of the cross is not complicated. It's really simple. Jesus died for your sin and When you trust in him, when you believe in him, you experience forgiveness and new life. And and Paul is saying there's two basic responses to the message of the cross. There's two. And a lot of times it's internal, it's not outward. But one response is to say that's foolish, that's absurd. To think that I need what Jesus is offering, to think that I can't get where I wanna go through accumulation and self-actualization, through pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, and to think that some guy who died 2,000 years ago, that that's actually relevant for me, that that somehow helps me. And he's saying, and I don't want to blunt the force of this, when that is our response to the gospel, he says we are perishing. And that word perishing, it's a present participle It implies process. In other words, this isn't a one-time thing. The more that we respond to the message of the cross in a way that says it's foolish, I don't need it, the more we respond that way, the more we are on our way to destruction. And this is in the middle voice, by the way, which we don't have in English, but it's something the subject does to itself. So it's not God with a big stick doing retributive punishment for everybody who won't trust. The idea here is whenever we push back from the message of the cross, it's too offensive, it's too scandalous. We are on our way. Again, we are devolving into destruction. And some of us have seen this in our own lives and other people's lives. I mean, think the prodigal son for a moment who left the father's household and his life became just a wreck, empty, broken. It's what happens when we Push away, that's one response. The other response to the message of the cross is what? It's to say, I see this message as the healing power of God to do something in and through the cross I could never, ever do for myself. Now there's a, a great hymn of old called Rock of Ages and there's a line in Rock of Ages Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And I love what Tim Keller said. He said, you know, all you need to be saved, all you need to experience God's grace is nothing. And the problem is most people don't have it. You see, the gospel, the message of the cross, is not for the overachievers. It's for the broken the desperate. But when we respond this way, when we cling to it, it is the power of God. And it can save you. It can transform your whole life. And, and by the way, we're never done being saved. I want to be clear. This phrase, it's in the present active. It's, it's really to us, who are continuing to be saved. We're all in process, and we need to hear this today, because some of us, listen, we think the message of the cross, is it has power in the sense that it transfers our eternal destiny to heaven. And we get to go to the floaty place one day, woo! But the power of the cross is that it transforms us now, And our final destination. But now, you know, the the word for power in the Greek is dynamis. It's the root from which we get the word dynamite. I'm convinced, and I didn't know this until I was reading this text. This right here, this verse, this idea of the cross of Christ has radical, explosive power for the believer in Jesus today. And, And this is what happened in the first century. It changed the world. I mean, So much of what we consider obvious about human rights was not obvious then in the first century. People were slaughtered for entertainment in Rome. As I already mentioned, people were publicly tortured and executed, and their bodies were left for days. Slavery was alive and well and unchallenged. There were no hospitals. There was no safety net. There was no welfare for the poor, the marginalized. None of that. But it was those first followers of Christ understanding what Jesus did on the cross that changed, it changed everything. They were working out the implications. See, it was Christians who sought to care for the broken and the vulnerable. It was Christians who started hospitals. It was Christians who, in a a society with no welfare, No safety net. They were the ones rushing in. They were the ones who stayed during pandemics to care for the poor. And and the reason that they believed that was because of the message of the cross. The reason they lived that way. They believed that Jesus Christ, as he was dying, suffocating to death, bleeding out on a Roman cross, they believed that he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that reality, y'all, it transformed them. And the way that they lived and the way that they loved, it turned the world upside down. And I'm just convinced that same power is available to us today, to you. And this is not just about let's get saved and make sure we're on the right side for when the time comes. No, this is now. And Paul is saying the message of the cross is everything. It's everything. And so what I want to do, I want to put that painting up again that we looked at at the beginning by Metegna and I want to ask you what do you see what do you see see some sermons are about what we do primarily some are about the way we see and the way we see influences what we do and how we live and that's what this is it's hey christian hey whoever you, no matter where you're coming from what do you see When you look at this, do you see something foolish or do you see something else? You know, Brian Zond, he he gives us a few of the things we see when we're looking at a painting like this. We are seeing the moment of eternal forgiveness. We're seeing the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure, the death that conquers death, the overthrow of Satan, the axis of love that refounds the world the enduring model of discipleship. This is about discipleship too. I mean, we live in a world where our appetite says enjoy yourself. Education says expand yourself. Materialism, please yourself. Psychology, fulfill yourself. Pride, promote yourself. Humanism, believe in yourself. And the cross, what does it say to us? It says deny yourself. The ironic thing is, is that when we lose our lives in this kind of a way that Jesus is talking about, we find it. We find it. You see, this is way more than just some event that happened 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. This is the blazing center of what we believe. And it is the power of God to transform you, to transform me, our church, our world. So, what do you see? <laughs> How are you gonna to respond to what you see? How will you and I live differently because of this reality? i want to close by reading a poem from Blind Man at the Gate, and it's called The Absurd Victory of the Cross. And I, I just want you to listen to these words, and maybe you just focus your attention on this image, or you close your eyes, but listen to these words, listen to what's true because of Jesus and the message of the cross. Who's the greatest conqueror in history? Christ Jesus, it is he. Consider the testimony, not by sword and shield, not by nukes and napalm, but by a cross and a crown of thorns. Christ conquered a world of evil, not by an F16, but by John 3.16, Jesus won his victory, not with an aircraft carrier, but as a cross carrier. Christ gained his kingdom. And this message is the hope for the world. Call me crazy, call me deluded, call me naive, but also call me a Christian. Because this is what Christians believe. It's absurd, it's a scandal, it's an offense, and it's the gospel. The gospel of the cross. So raise the cross above every flag. In the end, every flag will fall, but the, Christ, the, the cross of Christ cannot fall because the cross takes the blow, absorbs the hate, bears the sin, ends revenge, shames the tyrants, disarms the devil, wins the victory. Christ has become king by the absurd victory. Of the cross. Will you pray with me? God, we just give you thanks that 2,000 years ago, the obedience of your son Jesus to go to the cross, his love poured out for us, it changes everything. And I just confess to you sometimes how my own <clears throat> heart can grow hard and how I, I fail to be gripped by the beauty of the cross. And I just pray for all of us today that this reality would penetrate our hearts and it would move us, compel us to live differently because it is your power for those who are being saved. And God, I do pray for anyone in the room or online who has never experienced your grace and maybe what they've heard through their experiences in Christianity or religion has been just try harder, do more of the same. And maybe today they hear something different. And so, God, I just pray again that you would help those who don't know you be drawn to your loving kindness today. So, Lord, we just respond now through worshiping you. God, it's all we can do in light of your salvation, your grace. So, God, we sing, we praise you in Jesus' name and through your spirit. Amen.